it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today, we have episode 308. Today, we are going to answer three fantastic listener questions we got recently. So without any further ado, let's jump in and start answering some questions. So here we go. Hi, listen to every show here in England. My question is, when you talk about splitting your portfolio evenly percentage-wise, do you mean by value or number of stocks in each company? Thanks, Craig. All right, Andrew, do you want to go ahead and take the first stab at Craig's great question here? Yeah, it's pretty simple answer, Craig. When I say splitting up position sizing, I'm talking about from a percentage perspective. So if I was going to try to have, just to use easy numbers, a 25% position size for every stock in the portfolio, it'd be 25, 25, 25, 25. So I could have 2,500 bucks in Apple, 2,500 bucks in Microsoft, on and on. And so it doesn't matter how many shares that is necessarily, more so the percentage of if I have $10,000, let's go 25% and that's how I'm going to allocate it. So I would try to think, and that's, I mean, good practice just in general when you're thinking of your portfolio, try not to think about the number of shares of stock, but more so how much does Apple, what percentage does that make of my portfolio and think of it that way. Yeah, that's a great way to think of it. So when you start a position, do you generally have a size you want to start with? Do you go for maybe a smaller size and grow into it or start at a just, a, you know, I know some people like to just start at 3% or 5% or whatever. I guess, what are your thoughts on that? For me, I kind of just try to take what the market's giving me. So recently, a few months ago, I saw something that just looked like a complete fat pitch to me and I just... I wanted to swing for the fences because it felt like a really unique opportunity. So in that case, I sold some other positions, raised some cash, and put in a pretty hefty size. It was over 5% after I had already had a 5% position. So it made up around, uh, these are rough numbers, but it was somewhere around 12%, 13% of the portfolio. Other times, like last, let's say two months ago, I found a great stock. It maybe wasn't screaming, hey, this is a crazy deal, but it was a great stock. I'm trying to find great opportunities every month. So I put in my regular $150 a month for the model portfolio. And that 
at the time probably made up half a percent of the portfolio, something like that. Mm-hmm. So to me, I just try to take it month by month basis. I think some good general rules of thumb are, like you mentioned, the 3%, 5%. I know 5% is a good rule of thumb where if you can have a lot of your portfolio that way, a lot of investors have done that. But for me personally, it, it kind of varies. And I know we've talked in the past about having much greater concentrations in the past, like 20%. I've stayed away from that. But if it grows to that again, I mean, we'll just have to see. What about you? Yeah, I probably do something similar. I try to, I don't necessarily have a ideal starting position. A lot of times it just depends on what the market is giving me and how much firepower I have to take advantage of a particular position. Sometimes I will start small and try to build into the position maybe as I become more aware of the company. And you know, as your knowledge builds, it gets easier to take a bigger and bigger slice of the company. And so I've tried to do that. You know, my portfolio ranges, I think the highest is Berkshire Hathaway is around 15%. And then I have several other positions that are around a percent or maybe less, kind of depending on how they're performing. So that can adjust for that as well. And that's, I have found that that kind of works well for me and I can sleep well with that at night and feel comfortable. You know, having Warren manage 15% of my money, I'm okay with. I know not everybody is comfortable with that high of an allocation, but that works for me. I think, you know, like you said, having a rule of thumb of maybe a 5% as a starting place is probably not a bad place to get. You know, it that indicates that you're going to get up to 20 positions in your portfolio. And obviously, if you have less than that, then you may have altering, you know, percentages across the board. I wouldn't, I think one thing I'd like to caution people on don't get caught up on the position sizing per se, in that, let's say that one of them gets up to, you know, because it does really well, all of a sudden it jumps up to 7% of your portfolio and another one drops to 4.5%. Don't get too excited about that. That's kind of a normal thing. 401ks, can be set up to naturally rebalance and they can do that. And you have the same option of doing that as well if you want with your portfolio. It's not something I generally do, but I wouldn't try not to get too obsessed about, you know, hey, this position's at 5.24%. I got to get it back to five. And the other ones have dropped to 4.92. I got to get that up to five. There's going to be natural fluctuations in the market. You know, Amazon's going to drop 2% in a day. It's not unusual. If you're looking at the rebalancing, your portfolio, I guess I would try to look at longer time periods to do that. Don't obsess about doing it every day. That A, will drive you nuts and B, it'll probably drive you out of the market. And if you do that, you're just naturally going to put the good money after the bad money. Right. If you did it every time. Right. You'd be watering the weeds. Yes. Or potential weeds. Yeah. I think that's a good way to think about it. You know, one last thing I think I want to mention is, you know, even if you start with a smaller position, let's say that it's one or 2%, and you let it run and it becomes a bigger position, that's a good problem to have. And that's one of the things I know our friend Brian Feraldi does with his portfolio is he generally starts with smaller positions and he lets the winners run. And that's just kind of how he builds that into his portfolio to maybe start at 2 or 3% and realize that if it performs well, it will go up and will increase the percentage in the portfolio as well as the returns of the portfolio. And I guess there's an advantage too that I guess I didn't think about before is that if it doesn't do as well, it's not going to impact the overall returns of your portfolio that much. When it's a smaller size. Right. 
So can you maybe um, heal that layer one more? So what is it about having a position that's doing well to continue to become a bigger, bigger portion? What's the fundamental driver behind that? I think, well, a lot of times it's going to be the business performance, hopefully, that it's the business performance. Sometimes it can be, you know, the stock market can be a fickle friend. And, you know, NVIDIA is obviously killing it with the revenues and everything. But time will tell whether the price that people are paying for right now is justified. I'm not going to weigh into the pros and cons of that. But when you have a company that you buy and it does perform well over the long period of time, you know, history has shown that it's the business performance that will drive those returns. So if you buy a really good business, let's say you buy Apple or Microsoft or Texas Instruments or you know, insert company here, if they do well performance-wise with the business, the market will recognize that over time and it will grow the performance of the company. You know, sometimes you'll get lucky and you'll buy a company and it may pop and it could be because it becomes the new darling in the market. And sometimes that's based on fads and sometimes it's based on actual performance like what's happening with NVIDIA right now. Yeah, very well said. Yeah. So move on to the next question here. Yeah. Any comment on hedging? Say if you have investments in S&P 500, what would you do when you see the curve going down fast like it did in 2020? Smyther. Yeah, that's a great question. I am not a hedger. Are you a hedger? I'm not a hedger. I'm not a hedger. I don't have any hedges. I'm looking I, outside of my front yard right now. I don't have any. <laughs> I mean, I have a big bush. I don't know if that counts. Yeah, I don't think that counts. I have a rainforest in my backyard here, right out my window. So I don't really have any comments on hedging. It's not something that I partake in in my portfolio. And if I was invested in something like in the S&P 500 and I see the curve going down fast, like it did in 2020, I would either hold or I would take advantage of it because I knew that the fundamentals of what it was that I was either owning or looking to buy are still solvent and still in place. And that's what I did with Visa during that period is I saw an advantage, an opportunity to take advantage of a fantastic company that was seeing a kind of a historical downturn that in hindsight was a good call as much luck as anything, but that's how I would treat it. What about you? I did treat it in a way where I just held on and just as I processed what was going on, eventually reacted to the big major events over time and I didn't try to do it all at once. Mm -hmm. And that served me well because my portfolio crashed by 30 40% like everybody else's seemingly overnight. But then in a very short amount of time, came back up. So the idea behind hedging, I think there's a time and a place for it. So I don't want to get super into the weeds, but let's say you are a pension fund, right? And you manage pension for firefighters. And so money maybe goes into the pension, but also sometimes money comes out of the pension to pay off people, the firefighters who have retired. As a pension fund, you can't afford to have 30% down in a year and not have it come back because you, have, you still have to make these pension payments. So a pension fund, they might invest in a hedge fund who will hedge. And so they might not have the highest returns when the market goes up because you lose money when the market goes up and you have hedges. But they get that consistency year to year to year so that they can continue making these pension fund payments to the people for them. For most long-term investors who are building a portfolio and looking 10, 20, 40 years ahead, what happens tomorrow if the market crashes again like it did in 2020 does not affect what my hopefully eventual retirement would be 
in 20, 30 years, whatever that looks like. And so that's why, you know, hedging sounds great and you can totally use your time machine and put yourself in different places in history and look at all the money you could have made. But hedging is also expensive. It weighs down on your portfolio over time and it just simply puts a lid on your long-term compounding. So I would not advise doing it because hedging over time is expensive. You pay a good amount of percentage points per year to hedge. It doesn't sound like a lot, but it adds up over time. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think for most investors who are long-term mindset, which you should have, should not worry about hedging. Don't have time to search the whole stock market. Tired of waiting through endless information. Instead, get my trusted stock picks at valuespotlight.com. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before Nerd Wallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money. Not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. Can you maybe explain in a 30,000-foot view of what hedging is for yeah. people that maybe aren't familiar with that? Yeah, it's a great point. Great question. So let's say I want to protect against the market crashing 30% tomorrow. So you would... One way to do that is to buy like a put, which is basically you're betting against the market. So if the market crashes, this put will go up in value by a lot. And we had Cameron Smith on our show. 
maybe a couple of years ago talking about hedging with puts. Mm -hmm. And that's a good conversation if you find that that applies to you. But you're basically putting a very small amount, like half a percent. You could think of like half a percent in order to make like a hundred percent. So the payoff is really huge and you don't have to put that much money down. The problem is 99 out of 100 times, you're just throwing that money down the drain. Mm -hmm. And so it really only pays off in these super extreme events like we saw in 2020. It's all on the spectrum. So I'm just giving like a basic way that a lot of people hedge. There's a whole wide spectrum that you could do that. You could pay more to have it happen more, but with less payoff, it's a sliding scale. But that's the general concept that a lot of people use is I'll throw a little money away to have that downside protection and it pays off really high in the case that we get some crazy event in the market. That's a very good explanation. That makes a lot of sense to me. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to the next question. So we got, hi guys, how do you evaluate management or CEOs of a company? What is the best way to know if a company has a air quote, good CEO who will benefit shareholders. And this is from Eric. So this is a fun, fantastic question. Andrew, I'm going to let you take the first stab at it. Eric, I mean, if you have the answer to this, I'd love to hear it. (laughs) If you have a way to look at a person and instantly know if they're going to be, you know, a good worker or somebody with integrity, all of these things, I would love that secret. It's tough. And, you know, it is part of the job of an investor. If you're picking stocks, you're trying to buy individual companies and become part business owner in these companies, it is a tough job. So there's, I don't know, there's a lot of ways to go about it. I guess, Dave, if you had to laser in on maybe one that's a good way to focus first, particularly if you're a beginner, right? where would you point people? Well, I think probably the first thing that I would probably laser in on is a metric called Earn on Investor Capital, or ROIC. And this is a metric that allows you to tell how efficiently the company slash manager, management, CEO, allocate the money that they earn the business back into the business to generate more return. So you have to think of it this way. Every company, regardless of who they are, whether it's Microsoft, Apple, Visa, Alibaba, Amazon, any of the greatest companies you could ever think of, they all have to reinvest. They have to spend money to make money. It doesn't just poof, appear. And so ROIC is a metric that we can use as outsiders of the company to measure how efficiently the company reinvests the money that they make. And so when a company generates revenue, they have all kinds of costs that are associated with that. And some of those costs are investment costs. And the ROIC can tell us how efficiently. So the higher the number, the better. So for example, if you're looking at Microsoft and they have... 25 to 35% ROICs, depending on the year, that's really, really good. And then if you look at visas, those are in the 20 to 25% range. Again, pretty good. But then you look at apples and they're over 100. And so it's kind of ridiculous. But the point is, is that those are, are great numbers. It's a an easy way for you to go to stratosphere.com or stratosphere.io, sorry, and look on their website and see, you know, put in your ticker for your company and you can see the ROIC and that could give you an indication that the current management does a good job of allocating their money efficiently because in theory, the higher that number is, the better the company will grow over a longer period of time. It may not happen tonight, 
but it will over a five or 10 year period because that nose to the grindstone will make an impact over time. I think that's probably the easiest number to look at to give you an indication of how well management allocates money. That's perfect. Would you look at ROIC over time? How would you look at ROIC over time? Yeah, the ROIC number, I think the way that I would probably try to look at it is I would look at a one-year time frame, a three-year time frame, a five-year and a 10-year time frame and just look at those numbers and try to average those out over those periods of time to give you a sense of how well they've done over time. In addition to that, this is a little more work, but in addition to that, I would try to overlay the CEO or CEOs of those time periods. Because unfortunately, not every company is going to have Warren Buffett as a CEO for 65 years. So you won't have a track record to measure it against. So, you know, if we take Microsoft, you know, over the last 10 years, it's been yeah, almost 10 years has been Satya Nadella. So that would be easier. But other companies, you may not have that luxury. They may have a new CEO and they may have only been with the company for two or three years. And maybe the person before that was with them for 15 years. And so maybe you look at the 18-year period of those two CEOs and see how the ROSC has been. And again, with Stratosphere, I know you can go back longer periods. So it, it makes it a little easier to measure some of that stuff. So that's I guess one thing I would do, I guess the third component of that is I would try to look at, I would try to look at Microsoft's ROIC in comparison to Google's and Amazon's, for example. Amazon's going to be a little bit messy because their whole business is not centered around the cloud, but Google's most of it is or advertising and it's close enough <laughs> that it, you can give it a comparison, but try to compare the peers of the company that you're analyzing and see how their ROIC compares to the company you're analyzing. And if your company's is the best, then that's a good thing. If it's not, then you might want to ask yourself, why is it not? Or look at those questions of the historical. And maybe it was at one time, but the CEOs, you know, the new CEO that's been with the company for three years, since then, the, the, the ROICs haven't been so great. And so maybe those are things that you can ask yourself to start to I guess, dial in on maybe why the CEO is maybe not managing because job number one for every CEO is managing capital, allocating the money that they generate for us as the shareholders. As a public company, they work for us and that's their job is to allocate the money that it makes to make sure that they get the best return for us. And sometimes I know they all do it for themselves, but it's, it's really supposed to be for us. And so I guess that's how I would kind of look at the ROIC idea and look at it in a few different ways to give you, I guess, a better indication of how management's doing and how the company does in comparison to historical and peers. And I guess, what are your thoughts on that? Just to kind of hammer down on what you were saying about if the CEO hasn't been around a long time, I recently invested in a company called McKesson. And the CEO had been around for maybe three years or so. There was a lot of noise in the financials because they've gone through this litigation thing. But in general, I saw a trend of ROIC going up. And that also coincided with some other big actions that McKesson took, like shedding lower margin businesses to improve the basically the capital efficiency of the entire business. And so for me, that was one signal for McKesson in general that I like where management's head's at here. I like the fact that, you know, they might not have inherited the best ROIC, but I'm seeing 
not only are they saying out loud in their conference calls that, hey, we're doing these different things, but I'm seeing the results play out in the financials, in the ROIC. And so to me, like to your point, where is that ROIC moving? And what is that telling you about how management is allocating their capital? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great observation. And I think really kind of understanding what management is doing will help you give you a better sense of how well they're doing. I guess, do we want to talk about maybe some of the softer skills of trying to kind of look at management and maybe how well they're doing or not? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I guess I... This is very not a hard and fast rule and it's certainly not anything you can tangibly quantify or qualify is when you listen to them talk, how do they treat other people? I know it's kind of a dumb thing, but one of the things that I have noticed is that the companies that I've ended up liking the most, the CEOs generally tend to be courteous at the very least to analysts or to interviewers or to other people that they're talking to. And I think sometimes CEOs can get a bit of a God complex. And so when you find people that treat other people with respect and humility and come across as a genuine human being, that tells me that that's the way they're going to treat their employees. And that's going to filter down through the company. And that's A, where people are going to want to work. And B, they're going to want to be productive while they work there. And they're going to want to do well for their boss and the company. And I think those kinds of soft ideas can go a long ways towards indicating a potential culture in a company. And that's A, where we all want to work, and B, that's what we all want to buy. Ah, that's awesome. I'll throw another log in the fire, maybe one of the more softer skills. I don't call it skill, but I guess a softer eval, if you will. This is a stock I sold recently. One of the things I noticed is every time I would read the earnings report, it seemed like they focus on a different metric. Like what was the metric that was the most attractive today? And then another one that was kind of weird was all the analysts asking about market share. And then now all of a sudden you're going to talk about market share in a call when those numbers look good for you. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like the all-encompassing reason why I sold the stock. There were other huge fundamental reasons. But that was one of those that made me feel like, okay, I think I'm on the right path here because something just seemed off. Mm -hmm. That was one of those things that stood out to me. Yeah, I think that's really telling, right? When you see they focus on these particular metrics for a very long time and then all of a sudden they stop. Right. We need you to ask the question, why? Why was this so important for the last five years and now all of a sudden it's not. Is that because something changed or is it because maybe they're not trending in the right direction and so they don't want to point that out? And that, that was something that PayPal did and I didn't like it. It was They changed some of the metrics that they were measuring their success by when things started to not go the way they wanted. And that's not really a great sign. And I think the other kind of aspect of that is, you know, my favorite, you know, is the whole adjusting of this, that, and the other thing. And I understand that there is going to be some of that and that's just kind of inherent in the business. But sometimes when it's adjusted 18 times and then the next earning call, it's adjusted 27 times. And then the next earning call, it's adjusted 14 times because maybe things got better. Okay. It seems like it's a moving target. For me, it makes it hard for me to trust that the management A knows where they're trying to go and B 
you know, as an as somebody trying to analyze the business, I don't know what target I should be shooting for because it's moving all the time, you know, and it's not a video game. It shouldn't be moving that much. <laughs> and now you're making me think of another company. So they adjusted all the time. And this was a stock I owned in 2020 and I got out of it. But one thing maybe to keep in mind, since we're kind of on the whole ROIC train is if a management look at the track record and look at the history of of what management has done with their money. And if there's been any impairments and they basically lit money on fire, watch out for that. Because that actually, when you impair an asset or an acquisition, that actually makes the ROIC jump up higher. Mm -hmm. So kind of like what I was saying, if I see an increasing ROIC, I like to see that. But if the reason why ROIC got higher is because they wrote down an asset, that's something that you got to watch out for. That's not a real increase in the efficiency of their assets. They've just literally said, these assets aren't worth anything anymore. And so now we have less assets. That doesn't make your company more efficient. That just, you just reduce the assets. So, you know, if you're a beginner, hopefully you followed through some of that. But that would be one of the pitfalls, I think, to the discussion we we're having earlier about ROIC is watch out if management's making these acquisitions and then writing them down. It's almost like a sneaky way to hide the fact that you're lighting money on fire. Right. And it's one of those things. I don't know how we change the accounting around that outside mm-hmm. of you just kind of have to pay attention and hope you catch it. I think that's a great assessment. And it all goes back to what I said earlier about capital allocation. And everybody makes mistakes. You know, once in a while we'll make a mistake. I mean, Buffett has made plenty of mistakes. And that's okay. And that's understandable. And you can't expect them to all be perfect. But if you have a company or a CEO that is constantly impairing because you know they're buying lots of things and none of them are working out and they're constantly, like Andrew said, lighting money on fire, then that's a big red flag because it just means that either they're not doing their due diligence and doing enough work to understand what it is they're buying and how they're going to integrate it into the company because it's not just so simple as popping down your money in Monopoly and buying property. You have to integrate the systems. You have to get the employees to buy into your culture. You have to make sure that the product that they sell is compatible with what your product is and that they can make it work with the product that you're selling. And if it doesn't, then you have just wasted everybody's money and time. You know, Like I said, sometimes you can overestimate how well something may do and that's human nature. But if a CEO is buying stuff just because he wants to boost his ego or that's how they want to grow their revenues because it's an easy way to grow revenues. But they buy a company, it boosts their revenues, gives them more earnings per share and makes it look good on the stock market. But then two years later, they have to impair that investment. In other words, they have to write it down and say that they overpaid for it. And then that is a big red flag. If it happens once in a while, okay, fine. But if you have a company that's buying companies regularly and they're setting money on fire regularly, that's not a good sign. You want to run for the hills for sure. 100%. So maybe for the beginner who wouldn't know what the first step is to learning about like an impairment or even like capital allocation outside mm-hmm. of seeing big flashing headlines on on the internet. If I wanted to know like Microsoft, for example, how did they allocate their capital in 2022? How would somebody even find that out? Yeah, that's a good question. So I guess first, understand that there's basically five ways that a company can allocate money. Number one is they can reinvest. So they can reinvest money back into the business. They can buy shares. They can buy their own shares, You know, eat their own shares, if you will. 
reduce their share count, which makes every share more valuable for owners. They can pay a dividend. They can pay down debt if they have it. So they can take a bigger portion instead of just paying interest payments. They can go, here's 20 billion to throw at this debt. You know, we're talking big boy numbers here. So it's not the same scale as what we operate on. And then they could also acquire other companies so they can use the money that they generate to buy other companies. So in that framework of those basically five different ways that they can do that, the quickest way to see what they're spending their money on for the most part is to look at the cash flow statement or the statement of cash flows. Because in those three subsections of the cash flow statement, you're going to see things like CapEx or capital expenditures, which is going to indicate that they're reinvesting in the business. They're buying furniture, they're buying computers, they're buying towers to build more cloud infrastructure. All those things are reinvestments in the business. You're also going to see dividends paid. You're also going to see share purchases or shares bought or treasury stock bought. All those indicate that they've bought their stock. And you're also going to see any debt that they either paid out or took on. And so you'll see the inflows of all that. They'll also see acquisitions. So if they bought any other companies or even percentages of companies, you'll see the money allocated to go out to spend on that. So you can see all those things in there. And ROIC is basically a compilation of part of the cash flow statement and part of the income statement and part of the 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 balance sheet. And we, I won't bore you with all that. But if you really want to dive into ROIC, go to our website, einvestingforbeginners.com. At the big search bar in the top, type in ROIC or return on invested capital and you'll be inundated with all kinds of information to help you learn more about how that whole thing works. But bottom line is the cash flow statement, I think would be the best place for a beginner to start to peel back what is Satya Nadella spending last year for Microsoft. Yeah, exactly. If you're a beginner and you look at the cash flow statement that looks like a lot, may I recommend pick one you know, Dave outlined the five ways a company can allocate capital. Pick one. Well, maybe dividends, like how the company pay dividends or CapEx is a good one. Capital expenditures, because like you said, it's long-term assets, it's buildings, it's equipment, it's land. So pick one of those and then look at like five companies that you can think of. Apple, Netflix, Chipotle, whatever. Just companies you're familiar with. And then look at each of their cash flow statements and then focus on another one and then another one. And just try to see what kind of things stand out to you. Like maybe Microsoft's CapEx is really high compared to everything else. Whereas Coca-Cola's dividends are really high. Things like that, you can start to get a basic understanding of how these companies allocate capital. And you maybe won't figure it all out in 15 minutes on your computer. But over time, if, if you're really interested in learning all of that, I think you can pick it up. And then before you know it, you'll be spouting out all five ways to allocate capital like Dave did. Right. <laughs> exactly. And you know, a useful little trick to help you with some of that analysis or at least to where to find the numbers, uh, control F on your keyboard uh, gives you a search option in financial statements in any document. But in financial statements is where I use it the most. Just type in dividends and then every time the word dividend is used in that financial statement, it will pop up in yellow. And then you can just move down to that each section and then you can learn more about what the company is saying about dividends in particular for 
Microsoft. It's an easier, quicker way to than trying to scroll back and forth or read, you know, all 122 pages of their 10K to find the needle in the haystack. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, we will go ahead and wrap up our conversation for today. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on your preferred podcast app if you enjoyed our little show. If you would, kindly consider giving us a five-star review. It greatly helps our show. And don't forget to browse the incredible materials we've created for you at einvestingforbeginners.com, i.e. look up ROIC. And lastly, continue growing your knowledge as an Investing for Beginners insider with insights and educational tips delivered right to your inbox for free. Sign up today. And with that, I will go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there, invest with the margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.